This morning's scripture passage comes from the book of Genesis. We'll be in Genesis chapter 22, verses 1 to 24. If you'd like to follow along in the Blue Pew Bibles in front of you, feel free to do so, and you can turn to page 16. Genesis chapter 22, verses 1 to 24. Please rise now for the hearing and the reading of God's holy and inerrant word. After these things, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, here I am. He said, take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. So Abraham rose early in the morning, saddled his donkey, and took two of his young men with him and his son Isaac. And he cut the wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place of which God had told him. On the third day, Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw the place from afar. Then Abraham said to his young men, stay here with the donkey. I and the boy will go over there and worship and come again to you. And Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac, his son. And he took in his hand the fire and the knife. So they went, both of them, together. And Isaac said to his father, Abraham, My father. And he said, Here I am, my son. He said, Behold, the fire and the wood, but where's the lamb for a burnt offering? Abraham said, God will provide for him himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. So they went, both of them, together. And when they came to the place of which God had told him, Abraham built the altar there and laid the wood in order and bound Isaac, his son, and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Then Abraham reached out his hand and took the knife to slaughter his son. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, here I am. He said, do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God, seeing you have not withheld your son, your only son from me. And Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, behind him was a ram caught in a thicket by his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called the name of that place the Lord will provide. As it is said to this day, on the mount of the Lord it shall be provided. And the angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time from heaven and said, By myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, 
because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you. And I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and as the sand that is on the seashore. And your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies, and in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed, because you have obeyed my voice. So Abraham returned to his young men, and they arose and went together to Beersheba. And Abraham lived at Beersheba. Now after these things, it was told to Abraham, Behold, Milcah also has borne children to your brother Nahor, Uz his firstborn, Buz his brother, Kemuel the father of Aram, Chesed, Hazo, Pildash, Jivlaf, and Bethuel. Bethuel fathered Rebekah. These eight Milcah bore to Nahor, Abraham's brother. Moreover, his concubine, whose name was Ruma, bore Teba, Geham, Tehash, and Makkah. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Let me pray for us once more. Oh, gracious God, we thank you for the holy word that was just read. And now we're asking for the Holy Spirit to accompany the preaching of that word so that your church might be blessed and built up, that your name might be highly lifted and exalted in our presence. O oh Lord, glorify yourself in this holy moment. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, church, we have been in a series in the book of Genesis looking at the life of Abraham, and this morning we have arrived at the very pinnacle of his story. In this episode, we see the high watermark of his faith. I mean, everything we've read to this point, everything we've, we've preached on to this point leads us to this very moment where Abraham faces his greatest test, and he passes with flying colors. Now, I think it's important, though, to address right up front, before we really get into the, to the meat of this text, to address what I think many of us find uncomfortable about this rather familiar story. And it's the fact that God is testing Abraham. I mean, that's how chapter 22 begins, right? It says, after these things, God tested Abraham. Abraham. So everything you read here is a test. And I know that word makes many of us feel uncomfortable. Because when we hear the word test, oh, we instinctively cringe. The, the hair stands up on the, on the back of our necks. The term test or, or testing, I know it tends to generate fear and anxiety in many of us because we've, we've grown up under the threat of tests that could result in your failure or that were intended to, to weed you out of a program or of a class. And so when we read of God testing Abraham, I think for many of us there's this instinctive negative reaction, which of course is why it's so important for us to clarify that in ancient Near Eastern culture, in which this story was uh, um, uh, played out and was recorded. The term testing, the term test, 
was not used in the context of an academic setting where we're more familiar with it. Rather, it was used in other contexts such as metalsmithing. So, for example, this is where a metalsmith would be working with an unrefined ore of gold or, or silver or copper, and part of the creative process is to test that ore, typically through fire. But, of course, an experienced metalsmith has enough skill to know whether he's actually dealing with an ore of gold or not. So, so by testing it, by, by placing it into a furnace, he, he's not trying to figure out, is this thing actually gold? No, he's trying to refine what he already knows to be gold. He's trying to burn away the dross. He's trying to purify the gold. That's the purpose in testing. So my point here is that I think we need to adopt a new perspective to this whole idea of, of going through a test, being tested. We have to lay aside our automatic negative reaction and, and try to reconsider this idea that God would actually test his people. You see, like a, like a skilled metalsmith, what God is doing is, is when he tests us, it's not because he's trying to learn something about us that he doesn't already know. It's not because he's trying to figure out if we're genuine believers. He's not trying to figure out whether we have real faith. No, the Lord puts you through a test. If he does that, it's because he's trying to refine the faith that he already knows you have. He's trying to purify your soul. That's his purpose. That's his intent. So he wants you to really come out of that period of testing with greater self-awareness, understanding the true nature of your faith, and as well as coming away with a greater trust in the Lord, which should be the very object of your faith, not in anything else but the Lord himself. And so, friends, that's the same goal I have for us today for us in this message. I, I do hope you come away from this message with greater self-awareness and at the same time, a greater faith in the Lord. That's the purpose. So to that end, what I want to do is show you three things out of this text. If you want to follow along, look in your bulletin, you'll see an outline there. And these are the three things I want you to see. First, I want you to see the God who purposefully tests. Second, the man who obediently trusts, and third, the Lord who graciously provides. Three things I want to show you this morning. So let's begin by confronting the reality of a God who purposefully tests his people. And this, like I said, chapter 22 begins by, by setting this text, this test, really within the, the larger context of Abraham's story. So let me read verse 1 again. After these things, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, here I am. Now, that, that phrase to begin this chapter, after these things, that alerts us that whatever we're about to read should be understood in the context of how chapter 21 concluded. And so there, if you look at the end of chapter 21, in verse 33, we read that Abraham, quote, called there on the name of the Lord, the everlasting God. From that point on, he came to understand and to call upon God as the everlasting God, El Olam, the everlasting God. Now, if you recall, prior to our passage, there had been a lot of instability 
in Abraham's life. I mean, partly due to his own self-inflicted drama when it came to, to, uh, to uh, Sarah and his servant Hagar and the child that he bore with Hagar, the, the, his first son Ishmael. Also, all the drama that came about with him failing to protect his wife while they were sojourning in the land of Gerar. And so, for a moment in his story, things were in, uh, unstable. The, the future was, it was insecure. The covenant promises that God had made to Abraham looked unstable, and, and the questions were, were arising. Will this promised child ever arrive? The, the son of promise through whom all the covenant blessings are to perpetuate, is he actually coming? It's not yet clear. But of course, by the end of chapter 21, the Lord has shown himself to be faithful to his promises, especially that long-standing promise to provide them a son through Sarah. So his covenant faithfulness endures in spite of Abraham's faithlessness and failures. And that is why from this point on, he calls upon the Lord God as the everlasting God with his everlasting faithfulness to his promises. But now, this everlasting God is the one who's about to introduce confusion and chaos into Abraham's life. This God is about to test Abraham. And again, it's not because God's ignorant of what's going on in Abraham's heart. It's not because he doesn't already know how Abraham is going to respond. No, he already knows all of that. But nevertheless, this test is going to reveal a lot. A lot to Abraham. You see, it's totally possible, totally possible to use your lips to call upon God as the everlasting God, but all the while never actually experiencing his everlasting faithfulness. And calling him your merciful God is not the same thing as actually experiencing his mercy. Addressing him as Lord, that's one thing. Experiencing his lordship, well, friends, that's an entirely different thing. So that's one reason why God puts us to the test. It's to give us experiential knowledge of the one whom we confess with our lips. And as, as we're going to see here, that's exactly why he put Abraham to the test. You call me one thing with your lips, I want to make sure you actually know what that means and you experience it in real life. That's what this is about. Now that word tested that you see there in verse 1, it really does prepare us to interpret what's going to follow because it's really a cue that what God is about to ask Abraham to do is not something he actually wants him to go through with. So let's be very clear about that in the beginning. This passage is not suggesting in the slightest that God condones child sacrifice, much less, much less desire it. This is a test from the start. But Abraham doesn't know that at this point. For all he knows, God is completely serious with this request, and so he takes this request seriously. Now, I don't doubt that, that God's request shocked Abraham. I'm sure he was surprised, but not for the same reason that most of us are. You see, we're shocked. We're surprised by the mere suggestion of child sacrifice coming from the Lord. 
I mean, how, how in the world can he associate himself with such a wicked, horrible practice? It's opposed to his character. It's prohibited by his law. It is beyond the pale for God to ask for such a thing. But remember, at this point, Abraham is still getting to know the Lord God. There, there is no law written yet. There is no Leviticus 18.21 or Deuteronomy 18.10 written yet where God, in those verses, explicitly opposes the sacrifice of children, which was common in the nations around them. So for Abraham, for a man living in the ancient Near East, the idea of a God demanding the sacrifice of children actually wouldn't have been a shock. I mean, the fact that Leviticus and Deuteronomy would have to directly prohibit such a thing for Israel tells us, yeah, it was common enough in those days. That's why it had to be even explicitly prohibited. What shocked Abraham was not that God was asking for a child sacrifice in general, but that God was asking for him to sacrifice this child in particular. Remember, this is supposed to be the child of promise. This was the son through whom all the covenant blessings would flow to Abraham's family and by extension to all the families of the earth. And remember how Abraham had asked the Lord God if if his first son, Ishmael, could be that actual child. Before Isaac came, he was like, can we just work with Ishmael? Can all the promises just go through him? I'm fine with that, Lord. But God insisted that the covenant blessings would flow through a son born by Sarah. And so, of course, you can understand Abraham's confusion. Lord, you insisted for all these years that the child of promise be Isaac, but now you're telling me to kill him? Now you want me to sacrifice him to you? Abraham is understandably shocked, just for you know, a different reason than us. So Abraham is faced with a big test, asking for a big sacrifice. Now, on one hand, if you think about it, he should be used to by now sacrificing things. I mean, his story, as we've been reading, is marked by sacrifice. I mean, back in Genesis 12, where we started this series, we saw how from that point on, he had been asked to sacrifice everything comfortable, everything familiar. He was asked to leave behind his family, to leave behind his land, to come to a new land, to start a new family. But at least these sacrifices were accompanied by promises of blessing. God said, I will bless you with a new family. I'm going to bless you with a new land. He was being asked to give up a lot, but at least the Lord was going to make it worth his while. There was going to be benefit to come out of these sacrifices. But now here, in Genesis 22, Abraham is being asked to do something different. He is being asked to make a sacrifice with nothing to gain. He has everything to lose. You have to understand that he's not just being asked to kill his son. He is being asked to kill all hope. He is being asked to destroy what he perceived to be the very source of his hope for a blessed future. There was no apparent blessing to come out of this sacrifice. In fact, it seemed like God was actually reneging his promises, that he was canceling all of his blessings. That's what it appeared like. So Abraham faced the test. A test 
that will determine if his trust is really in the Lord himself or merely in the things the Lord has promised. Which do you love more, Abraham? The promised blessings? The promised blessings of the covenant? Or do you love the God of the covenant? The promises or the promise maker? Who do you love more? Where do you ultimately place your trust? That, my friends, is what this test reveals. And really, that's what God intends to accomplish every time he puts us through a test. He's trying to raise the question of who do you ultimately, within whom do you ultimately place your trust? Like that skilled metalsmith working with an unrefined, unfinished piece of gold, what God is doing when he tests you is he is basically taking your crude, unfinished faith and he's going to put it into the fire to test it to refine it, to expose what you have been putting your trust in. Have you been putting your whole trust in the Lord himself? Or is it revealed that the source of your hope is really in the things that he's promised to bless you with? Do you trust in the God of the covenant or merely in the benefits of being in a covenant with God? Do you love your promised salvation more than you love the God who promises to save you? I mean, just imagine with me if you were presented with a choice here. Imagine you had this choice. You could either live in a perfect world with a perfect life, with a perfect family and friends, with no suffering, no sickness to seal your joy, but in this scenario, without God in your life, Or you could live in a world marked by sin and suffering, filled with frustration and failure, but with God in your life. Which would you choose? Some of us just might choose the first option. Be honest with yourself. Is your hope merely to be in heaven one day? Or is it to be with the Lord of heaven? Would you be satisfied with the promised blessings of heaven even if God were not there? That would be like Abraham being satisfied with being a father, being the father of many nations, being satisfied with, with, with the blessings of the covenant even if the God of the covenant was absent from his life. Well, this here in chapter 22 is a test to see if that's so or not. Whether Abraham would be content having the Lord in his life or not, or if really he just wanted the promises. That's what this test is about. So let's see. Let's see how Abraham responds to that test. Now, I think we're going to find that it's encouraging to see a man, and here's our second thing to see, to see a man who responds obediently, obediently trusting the Lord. But first, before we look at his response, let's look back at verse 2 and and let's listen to to the parameters of this test he's going to be put through. The Lord, he's not making it easy here. Listen to how the Lord presents his request in verse 2. He said, take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. Now notice there how the Lord is, is just stacking these phrases one on top of another, right? So take your son. Your only son, Isaac, the son whom you love, take him 
and offer him up as a burnt offering. So grammatically, what's happening here is that this stacking is intended to magnify the intensity of this request that's being made. And, and, and it's, we're told here he is to offer up Isaac as a burnt offering. And we know that according to the law, that was the only kind of offering that was to be completely consumed by fire. In other words, it is to be wholly devoted to the Lord. Now, if you keep on reading in verse 3, Abraham doesn't really betray any emotions. We can only speculate as to what's going on in his heart, what's going on in his mind. What we see, rather, in Scripture is a man going through the motions the very next day, early in the morning, to prepare for a trip to a far-off mountain to, to make an altar for the Lord. Now, we're told that he brought a donkey, two servants, and his son Isaac. And it says that it was a three-day trip to, to get to Mount Moriah. So three days. Imagine just having to silently endure for three days all of this, just weighing on your mind, weighing on your heart. Now we're not given an inside look into his thoughts. That's not how this narrative is told. But, but we do, we, we, we are able to read his words. And I think Abraham's words are revealing of what's probably going on internally. So look at what he does say to his two servants there in verse 5. Look at verse 5 with me. He says, stay here with the donkey. I and the boy will go over there and worship and come again to you. Now, it's obscured in the English, but those verbs for worship and for come again, they're both in the first person plural. So a literal translation would say, I and the boy will go over there and we will worship and we will come again to you. I know it's a clunky sentence, but it's important to stress those plural verbs. We will go and we will come again to you. That, my friends, is what faith sounds like. Those are the words of a man who trusts in the everlasting God to keep his covenant promises everlasting. God doesn't know how, but somehow the Lord is going to stay true to his promises and he's going to preserve this child of promise, even if he gets offered up as a burnt offering. Somehow the Lord is going to do it. Notice more words that are revealing of Abraham's internal thought process. Look look with me at verse 8. Isaac just said to him, Behold, the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for a burnt offering? Listen to how his dad replies. God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. So notice how he trusts that God's going to provide for himself. That God's going to get it done. Abraham doesn't know exactly how it's all going to work out, but he obediently trusts that somehow the Lord is going to provide. The Lord is going to pull through here. The author of Hebrews, he comments on this particular episode in Abraham's life, and he actually gives us a divinely inspired look into Abraham's internal thought process. Listen to Hebrews chapter 11, verses 17 to 19. Quote, By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac. And he who had received the promises 
was in the act of offering up his only son, of whom it was said, through Isaac shall your offspring be named. He considered that God was able even to raise him from the dead, which, figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. So the author of Hebrews is saying that those little words, we will come to you again, those words illustrate Abraham's great faith in the Lord to provide a way to keep his covenant promises, even if it means raising up Isaac from the dead. God will make a way. That's what he believed. So just as he treated God's request to sacrifice Isaac seriously, Abraham treated God's word seriously when he had earlier promised, through Isaac shall your offspring be named. So if God said it, then God's going to do it. No matter how impossible it might seem to me right now, I believe God will do it. That's what obedient faith sounds like. Now, let's be careful. Let's be extremely careful here. That's not to endorse a blind faith that takes any impression that you personally might think God wants in your life and to just blindly believe that whatever you think God wants, it shall be done. That's not what we're saying here. I'm only suggesting if God's word says it. If you can find it in God's word, if you can find a promise of God in scripture, then you can bank on it no matter how improbable it might seem for it to come about. That's really how you please God. That's how you honor God, by taking him at his word. You know, I, I know there's a whole bunch of parents of young children here. And so just imagine if your young child kept questioning your word at every turn. Mommy, mommy do, you, do you really love me? Do you really love me? Dad, Daddy, are, are you really going to catch me? Really? Are you? I mean, I, I think we would be hurt if, if our child couldn't take us at our word, always questioning our word. But on the other hand, we would be honored if our child simply trusted us because we had promised, because we said we would do it. It's an honor when she gladly jumps into your arms because you said that you would catch her. That's an honor. It's pleasing. And so how much more do we please and honor our Heavenly Father when we simply take Him at His word? Now, friends, before we move on, and before we focus our attention back on the Lord, I, I think it's important to note, it's important to note that there is another man in this story who is obediently trusting. A young man in this case. You can make an argument that Isaac as well was exercising great faith. Because, I mean, just think about it. In verse 6, we read that Abraham took the wood, the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac, his son. He put it on his back, and together they hiked up that mountain. Now, if Isaac was old enough and strong enough to carry a bundle of wood up a mountain, then that means he is old enough and strong enough to resist an elderly centenarian father I mean, Abraham is over 100 years old. Isaac is a young, stra strapping young man who can carry this wood up a mountain. 
I think he can handle his dad. But apparently, apparently the son trusted his father and he refused to resist. He refused to flee. He too must have believed that God would provide for himself the lamb. Even if that meant he had to play the role of the lamb. He believed that somehow, some way, the promises that God had made to his father will continue through him. It must be because God said it. So Isaac let himself be bound and placed upon an altar of wood. And he lay there silent as a sheep before its shears. But as a knife was about to come down, we read that the angel of the Lord called out from heaven and stopped Abraham, stayed his hand, provided instead a ram caught in the thicket by its horns. And so Abraham, we read in verse 13, took the ram, offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. So in other words, God provided a substitute. This was a perfect example of salvation by substitution. And as that ram was wholly consumed by the flames, I can imagine both father and son staring in wonder, thinking, that should have been my son. That that, that should have been me. That should have been us. Thanks be to God for his provision of a substitute. Now, with that being said, let's focus our attention back on God. Let's consider our third thing to see. Let's consider the Lord who graciously provides. And that's really the key attribute that Abraham learns from this episode. Remember, as we said, there's still a lot he doesn't know about Yahweh. There's no written scripture yet. So there's no way for him just to pick up a scroll and begin to read about God's character. Everything has to rely on experiential knowledge. But now, because of this particular experience, he knows God as the Lord who provides. Listen to verse 14. So Abraham called the name of that place, the Lord will provide. As it is said to this day, on the mount of the Lord, it shall be provided. So what we learn is that the God who tests us is the same God who provides for us. He's not a cruel taskmaster who's going to just put you through a difficult test because he wants to see you fail. He wants to see you suffer. No, he wants to see you succeed. He he wants to refine you. And so when he puts you to the test, God is also going to graciously provide whatever you're going to need to grow and to mature from that test. And that's what Abraham discovered. The Lord asked him to trust and obey even when it made no sense. To trust and obey even when there was no apparent benefit coming out of it. But now, Abraham knows with experiential knowledge that the God who requests such radical obedience and such costly, costly obedience is a God who graciously provides what you need. We're told in verse 14 that from that day on, A saying grew popular among Abraham's descendants, among the Israelites. This this became a saying. On the mount of the Lord it shall be provided. That was a saying that they would say to each other whenever they faced a test. 
Whenever they had to go through a difficult season, whenever they were being asked to trust and obey in a costly and sacrificial way, they would say to each other, on the mount of the Lord, it shall be provided. That popular saying served as a needed reminder of this particular high point in Father Abraham's story, the key moment where where their forefather was tested and when he obediently trusted and when the Lord proved himself to be a faithful provider as the one who will preserve his covenant promises and perpetuate them forever, everlastingly. That's what they were reminded of. But what Abraham's descendants didn't realize at the time was the lengths to which God would go to be the provider, to provide for their very needs. Because many years later, he would ask another son to climb up another mount with wood on his back. Instead of Moriah, this this mountain was called Calvary. And like Isaac... This son would not resist what was coming. Like Isaac, he would trust his father. As silent as a sheep before its shears, this son of God would be lifted up on the wood to be slaughtered. But unlike Isaac, there would be no voice from heaven saying, Stop! Unlike Isaac, there there would be no other ram to be slain. Unlike Isaac, Jesus didn't get a substitute. Jesus was the substitute for us. He was the Lamb of God who was slain to take away the sins of the world. God was willing to sacrifice his own son for us. So think about what that means. That means that when God asks you to trust and obey him, when he calls you to sacrifice something dear to you for him, you can be comforted to know that he speaks to you as someone who experientially knows what it's like to do the same thing. God sacrificed what was dearest to him. He gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. And he did all of that out of love for his covenant people and out of an unwavering commitment to his covenant promises. So just know that God will never ask you to do something that he isn't willing to do himself. That's the kind of God who's asking you to deny yourself to take up your cross, to follow him. He doesn't ask you to make a sacrifice for him without having first made a sacrifice for you. That is really the logic that led the Apostle Paul to write for us Romans 8, 32, where Paul writes, He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? graciously provide for us all things. So friends, let me ask, what is the Lord calling you to sacrifice? What is he calling you to put to death? Could it be a relationship that you're heavily invested in right now, but you know is not healthy for you spiritually or emotionally? I know sacrificing that relationship is going to hurt. It's going to be hard. But remember, 
on the mount of the Lord, it was provided for you. Or could it be a dream? What does he want you to sacrifice? Could it, could, could it be a dream that you've been chasing? Could it, could it be a career aspiration that at this point is starting to consume you? You've been neglecting some pretty important responsibilities. You've been letting people down in your life. You've been making compromises that you know you shouldn't. Sacrificing that dream, I know, is not going to be easy. You'll have plenty of excuses to come up with in order to keep that dream. But remember, on the mount of the Lord, it was provided for you. What is he calling you to put to death? Could it be a cherished sin that you've allowed to dominate your life? Maybe it's something that you have been struggling with for years. You hate it, and, you can't, and yet at the same time, you can't seem to live without it. That's the struggle. Where are you going to find the strength to kill it, to put it to death? Remember, on the mount of the Lord, it was provided for you. Jesus your perfect substitute made the ultimate sacrifice for you. And now he graciously provides everything you're going to need to make that sacrifice of your own. This is the God who is calling you to follow. This is the God who has laid down his life for you and given you everything that you're going to need. Let's pray to this God. Father, we, we thank you for this text, a familiar story, but one that reminds us so much of your faithfulness, of your covenant promises. Oh Lord, thank you that you have provided for us. On the Mount of Calvary, you have given us everything we need. So whatever you're calling us to do right now, whatever sacrifice you are calling us to make, I know, Lord, you have provided everything we need to do so with faith and obedience. Glorify yourself in our lives, in the sacrifices that we make for you. In Jesus' name.